Hey there, everyone. This is your host, Michelle Ann Olson, and you are listening to Are You Afraid of the Bark, the podcast that goes bark in the night. Welcome, dear listeners, to this episode 24. I suppose that I should apologize for the fact that this is being released a few days late. I know that I've been rather inconsistent with my publishing schedule, and for that I am sorry. Life is just a little bit crazy right now, and I'm doing my best as far as trying to keep on top of the podcast. Please know that I so appreciate that you're here listening, even if I haven't been the most consistent. The podcast means a lot to me, and you, the listeners, mean a lot to me. I'm going to keep on trucking with this podcast until nobody's listening, and I will continue to try to do my best to produce it in a consistent fashion. But I do apologize for this bumpy road these past few weeks. Now that said, I'm really excited about this episode 24. This topic is actually one that was inspired by one of my favorite podcasts, one of the first ones that I listened to sort of from start to finish, binge listened at the time 60 or 70 plus episodes. That podcast is called And That's Why We Drink, and it's two hosts, Em and Christine, and they share in every episode a paranormal story and a murder story. So this topic was actually covered flawlessly, as always, by M in a recent episode, and it piqued my interest not only because the town that this hotel is found in is totally deserted and spooky, not only is this hotel that I'm going to be talking about totally haunted with a very dark and storied history, but this topic features a ghost cat. And that in in the episode of And That's Why We Drank, the ghost cat was a footnote. But of course, it's absolutely what piqued my interest about this hotel. And I'm going to wrap up my story with all of the information that I could find on the feline ghost haunting the Jerome Grand Hotel in Jerome, Arizona. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So today, Jerome in Arizona, has a population of about 440 people. And the articles that I found regarding this town and regarding the Jerome Grand Hotel, they were quick to point out that that population of 440 does not include the undead. So in its heyday, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Jerome was a booming town with 15,000 people living there. And they were banking on the success of the copper mining industry in this part of the state. In fact, in 1903, the New York Sun published an article saying that Jerome had earned the title as the wickedest city in the West because mining towns, towns founded on any kind of industry, are a haven for bad behavior. Sidebar, one of my famous sidebars. I'm from Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and today this capital city is seen as being sleepy, conservative. Some people would say boring. I would not. 
and that's offensive, but it really does have this reputation where the downtown area sort of closes at 6 p.m. when all the federal workers go home. If you don't know where to look, it can sort of seem devoid of a nightlife. You really have to tap into this undercurrent of culture. And once you do, it's a beautiful city and I miss it all the time. But people see it as being lower case C conservative. They see it as being sleepy, very polite. But Ottawa, too, was one of these towns born out of industry, in this case, the lumber industry. And before that, so much of the immigrant population was employed by the construction of the Rideau Canal, which, by the way, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so Ottawa, as polite and conservative as we see it today, it was basically gangs of New York. There were like nonstop sort of altercations between French Canadians and, and Irish immigrants. There was an entire street dedicated to brothels, essentially. It was a heavy drinking, hard fighting town with these gang rivalries and these wars in the streets. Anyway, I just always like to point that out because Ottawa has this reputation today that is nothing like its reputation in the earliest days of its history. So Jerome reminded me of those stories that I used to tell as a tour guide in Ottawa. With an overwhelmingly male population that lived life on the unsavory side, they came to Jerome to work in the mines, to make their fortune. They weren't there to settle or marry or start families. So pastimes included indulging in alcohol, drugs, gambling, and prostitution. So this led to a plethora of the following in the early residence of Jerome. Bankruptcy, mental illness, murder, and that crowd favorite, sexually transmitted diseases. And one of the fantastic articles that I read on the topic of the Grand Hotel and on the town of Jerome is an article that appeared on the To The Stars blog. Very fun article, and I did want to read this quote directly from that article. It made me laugh. This may lead some to ponder, what's better than a town filled with sex, scandal, and drugs? The answer is a town filled with the ghosts of prostitutes, gamblers, murderers, and opium addicts. And Jerome fits that bill. So not only is Jerome considered to be hella haunted to this day, but haunted by these sort of rough and tumble, what people of the time might have called unsavory folks. So that not only does Jerome have its fair share of ghosts, they are ghosts with personality. So eventually the mines closed down, and overnight Jerome became a literal ghost town. Some of the buildings began to literally slip down the hill, including the town jail, and remain in this sort of architectural limbo today. A group of artists rediscovered Jerome in the 1960s, and some of its charm and flavor was restored at that time. And as Jerome began to become repopulated after that initial decline, it was quickly noted that the town had an abundance of paranormal phenomena. So Jerome now has a title of the largest ghost town in America. Ghost town in the literal sense of desertion, but also now in this paranormal sense. So the building that I want to talk about in particular today is one of those that looms over the town from the top of a hill, the Jerome Grand Hotel. The Grand was constructed in 1926 as a hospital to treat tuberculosis and also the abundance of mining accidents that occurred pretty well daily in the early 1900s. 
It's estimated that about one person per day died at the hospital over 30 years of the hospital's existence. So that's about 9,000 people in a town of 15,000. And granted, that population was transient. That's still a significant history of mortality in one building. In 1994, the building was restored and transformed into the present-day hotel. But both guests and hotel staff insist that the hotel is haunted. They claim to have seen full apparitions, orbs, objects that move on their own, disembodied voices, coughing and wheezing coming from dark corners. The most famous ghost residing at the Grand Hotel is one Claude Harvey, and his story, be forewarned, is a bit of a gruesome one. Claude was a maintenance man who was discovered in the boiler room of the hospital, presumably murdered, in 1935. Today, for some inexplicable reason, the paint outline of his murdered body still exists, and in looking at that painted CSI-style outline, it's hard to miss the fact that his head was crushed under the elevator in the boiler room at the time of his death. If I remember, I'll post a picture of that outline, the head resting under the heavy weight of what would have been the elevator at the time. It just makes my skin crawl. Years later, another maintenance man complained about seeing a woman in the basement. He was seeing her pretty well nonstop all the time, and he was found hanging from a pipe in the boiler room two weeks later. The theory is that he was so disturbed by what he was witnessing and so unable to escape it that he could no longer go on. So I have some quotes here from general manager of the hotel, Chris Alther, and it was his father and uncle that bought the building from the corporation that owned it in those years of disuse between the time it was a hospital and this purchase that transformed it into a hotel in 1994. According to Chris Alther, quote, we were skeptical and didn't believe it in the building. We only had six rooms open at first and immediately began receiving reports from guests, hearing voices and a hospital gurney in the hallways, but no one was there, end quote. So scores of visitors have signed guest books in the lobby describing their experiences in the Grand Hotel since it reopened. Says Alther, quote, We fill a 300-page journal every year, and we have four or five of them right now. End quote. Activity is known to happen throughout the hotel, but the third floor in particular. So many of the deaths associated with the hospital's history occurred in the operating room once found there on the third floor. The sound of a hospital gurney with its wheels rolling being pushed down the hall in particular has been known to spook those staying on the third floor. Alther says, quote, We've made changes with carpet, and you can still hear it at three in the morning, end quote. I don't know why, but it's always worse when something happens at 3 a.m., the witching hour. Ugh, it gives me a little shudder. The room that receives the most comments in these logs of paranormal activities kept by the guests is room number 32. Author says that room 32 was a former hospital guest room with a balcony, and the possible site of two suicides. A former miner confined to a wheelchair after an accident reportedly climbed over the balcony railing to his death, and a businessman shot himself in the same room. 
As for Claude, the man murdered by elevator in the boiler room, he's thought to ride the 1926 Otis elevator, which for some reason is still in operation at all hours of the day. The third floor was also formerly the burn unit, the place of many miners' grisly and painful deaths. According to a former waiter who snuck into the abandoned hospital as a teenager, quote, they say you can still hear those guys screaming, end quote. So even during the period where the building was empty, there were many sightings, paranormal experiences, as reported by a former Jerome police chief who claimed that he went up to the hospital at least a hundred times following calls reporting strange activity up on the hill. So about 60% of those were just kids trespassing on the property, but he says that about 40% of those calls were straight up paranormal. The police chief said that half the people in town would call and report seeing a lady in white in the abandoned building. In the 1990s, a TV program brought in a psychic to the building. She sensed that the man crushed by the elevator had been murdered. Although how one murders with an elevator is beyond me. I don't really want to think about the logistics, the mechanics of that. It's horrific. So the psychic said, quote, He was a maintenance man who had gotten a job after a debilitating mine injury, end quote, and then had been murdered at the site of the hospital. As for the lady in white, the psychic feels that she was a nurse who felt guilty, quote, because a patient in a wheelchair had pulled himself up and over the third floor balcony and fell to his death in a suicide, end quote. That does seem to match up with what the hotel manager says about room 32. A 1997 newspaper account stated that the psychic, quote, was uncannily accurate about some of the hotel's past events relating things that the former police chief knew but that others did not, end quote. I'll leave it with the hotel manager, Althar, who sums up the haunting of the hotel by saying, quote, we have the real deal up here. It's not just a gimmick. We acknowledge it, end quote. So a very haunted place, well-documented across hundreds of guests, on television programs, in newspaper reports, by police officers. There is a level of sort of truth and accuracy in reporting these paranormal events that can be pretty rare. A lot of the time, hauntings rely on one or two witnesses. Sometimes we have to wonder if they maybe imagined what they saw or if they are the most reliable of sources. But what's interesting about the Grand Hotel is that the paranormal events have been witnessed in this location for decades, even before the hotel opened, and have been corroborated by so many different sources, some of whom, you know, law enforcement, business people, guests who maybe didn't know what they were getting themselves into. These do seem to be reliable voices who are all reporting the same things, the same events over and over and over again. I love a good ghost story. But I have to wonder if I would feel comfortable staying in a place like that. It almost seems to be asking for something to happen. So how does this tie into our animal friends? Well, 
I do have a little bit of good news regarding the hauntings in the Grand Hotel in Jerome, Arizona. It isn't all murdered maintenance workers and guilt-ridden ladies in white. There is one ghost at the Grand Hotel in Jerome, Arizona that I don't think I would mind encountering. And that is the ghost of a cat, most often reported seen on the third floor. And there's no historical reference for this cat. We're not sure who it is, but it has come to be known sort of lovingly simply as Kitty. Arthur, the manager of the hotel, says that he's so often been told that guests have felt a feline form jumping onto their bed and walking around alongside their bodies or at their feet. Quote, I have heard that one a million times. End quote. So the spirit cat is a frequent visitor to the hotel. Like I said, its origin is unknown. We don't know who this cat was in life, how it is connected to the building, but it's been heard meowing, hissing, and scratching at doors and walls. Both staff and guests have heard and felt the cat brushing against their legs and snuggling up against them while on the bed. Okay, and truth be told, if that happened to me, I would probably piss myself, but it does sound a lot lovelier than a woman in white or the screams of burn patients, doesn't it? Sometimes there can be seen this imprint on the bedding in the hotel of what is believed to be the cat curled up, that bedding having been moments earlier smooth and straight. There's even a photo provided by a guest staying in room 20 in 2008 that shows the cat very clearly laying on this guest's bed, and the photo is still at the front desk. Now, unfortunately, for the life of me, I could not find this photo online. But if any of you has ever seen it or heard of it or stumbles across it, let me know. I'd be very curious to see that photograph. Room 26 of the hotel was the x-ray room. And here is a quote from a paranormal investigator who spent the night in the hotel whose paranormal experiences seem to be triggered by the arrival of the mysterious spirit cat, by Kitty. Quote, Upon arrival, all was quiet. We took pictures and had the occasional orb or two in each picture. Further inspection of the photos revealed a gray cat under one of the beds. And that is when our frightening night began. We saw it all. From dark figures standing over our beds, dark orbs, white lights, doorknobs rattling, and strange screams, the occasional flicker of lights, end quote. And those paranormal experiences, again, kicked off by the appearance of this mysterious gray cat under the bed. And that is the story of the haunting of the Grand Hotel in Jerome, Arizona, with its very own feline ghost. And I hope that someday, just like with the haunting of the Fairport Lighthouse, maybe someday some excavation or discovery or written document will confirm the identity of this feline spirit. Always a question of why an animal becomes so bound to an earthly place even after they pass. I wonder about that feline spirit as much as I wonder about the lady in white. That cat has a story and 
maybe one day we'll get to hear it. And now, as promised, I would like to share with you some listener stories that have been sent my way. And first off, I have to say that I am beyond grateful to those listeners who reached out with these stories. Love you so much. It was just a real pleasure to read your stories and to hear some sort of firsthand or secondhand but very personal accounts with animals in the afterlife. It means a lot. So thank you to those listeners who sent in these stories. And if you, you listening right now, have any of your own experiences with the paranormal as it pertains to animals, please feel free to reach out. Get in touch with me on social media or shoot me an email. I'd love, love, love to hear from you. And you can let me know if you feel comfortable with me sharing your story on the podcast. So this first story comes from listener and one of my good friends, Carolyn. And this is what she had to say. Quote, so I have two ghostly dog stories for you. The first one is probably more my imagination and grief or longing than genuinely paranormal. But here it goes. In late May 2007, my darling wee Willie dog passed away. She had seen me through a lot. The poor dog had her fair share of teardrops shed on her furry blonde head. Suffice it to say, she was a faithful, much-loved fur sister. For two days after she died, I had such an uncanny feeling that she was in the other room, usually the bedroom where she loved to lounge on my pillows, that I repeatedly went to check to see if she was there. On the Friday following her passing, I brought her ashes home, and the feeling of her presence stopped. I've never felt it since. I think that Willie knew that she was back home. In fact, her ashes are in a special container on my mantelpiece, and so her spirit could go. Imagination, longing, grief, ghostly dog, who knows, end quote. That's a lovely little story. Carolyn sent that to me a while ago, and I'm just rereading it now, and I'm so sorry for your loss. It's making me emotional, because my own Coco is that animal for me, who has seen me through so much. And I know that you say that it could be wishful thinking, or imagination, or just grief, but I do like to think that Willie was still there with you, and now she's there with you permanently on your mantelpiece. That's just a really lovely story. Thank you very much for sharing. Carolyn sent a second story that comes from her family, and it reads as follows. Quote, The next story is one my grandma told me about her brother, Tom. Her brother had argued with their father so badly that he had been thrown out of the house and forbidden ever to return. Upon my great-grandfather's death, though, Tom returned to his childhood home, only to be met at the front door by a big black dog that would not let him pass. My great-uncle was so terrified that he ran away. The family did not own a dog, and apparently none of the neighbors had one which matched its description. For years after, Tom swore it was the spirit of his father, who was still determined to keep him from crossing the threshold of the house he had been banned from. End quote. That is a really, really cool story, especially if that's something that's been passed down to you by 
members of your family. What a cool part of your family's history, this familial legend. I feel badly for Tom, but it's a really neat idea that his father's spirit might have been able to manifest in that threatening way to keep the band son from entering the home, even after he had passed. It's a really neat idea, a spooky idea, and a great story. So thank you very much, Carolyn, for, for sharing those with me. And for being such a good friend and supporter of the podcast from the beginning. The next listener story that I wanted to share comes from Katie. Katie is not someone who I know personally, but somebody who's kind of come into just my sphere through the podcast. She's very good friends with another podcaster who I really love, Nathan of the I Hope You Suffer podcast, and we kind of were connected just through this podcasting community, and that's what I love about making this podcast. It's put me in connection with so many wonderful people, people I haven't even met in person, but who I interact with regularly now on social media, and who I consider friends. So anyway, Katie's one of those people, and I really am so grateful that she thought to send me this story, which, fair warning, is also a bit of a tearjerker. So here we go. Quote, Hi, Michelle. Some backstory on this. My parents recently retired to Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington is a port city that was established along the Cape Fear, great name by the way, Cape Fear River in the 1730s and was the center of trade, politics, and culture for the colony. Its downtown area is packed full of awesome historical landmarks, and because they experienced a lot of hardship and war, it's also alive with paranormal activity. I myself have had a personal experience while touring one of the houses, but that's a story for a different podcast. No, that's a story for this podcast. <laughs> Tell me. The email goes on. I visited my mom for her birthday in October, so of course I had to go on a ghost walk tour. It was my first, and I absolutely loved it. Appropriately, this is where I heard this story, and I tried to piece together more details, but there isn't a ton of information online. Anyway, let's crack into it. I think that's a little shout out to another little shout out to, and that's why we drink something they say all the time on that podcast. So here's the story that Katie is piecing together and retelling. William A. Ellerbrock fled from Germany to North Carolina sometime in the late 1870s. He had a hard time assimilating to his new life and was taken in by his uncle who helped Ellerbrock establish himself as a tugboat captain on the Cape Fear River. Sensing he needed companionship, his uncle gifted him a dog, a Newfoundland, who he named Boss. The two were inseparable on land and on water. Ellerbrock, who quickly became beloved in his community, was also a member of the Howard Relief Volunteer Fire Company. Boss was alongside him one night in 1880 when a fire broke out in a grouping of storefronts. Some accounts say that Ellerbrock handed Boss over to a bystander before racing into the burning building, and upon hearing his cries after he became pinned to the ground by fallen debris, Boss broke free and went in after him. The next morning after the fire was exhausted, they uncovered the remains of Ellerbrock and Boss. When they took a closer look, they discovered that Boss had a piece of fabric in its mouth, a piece of Ellerbrock's sleeve that had torn off as he tried to pull him to safety. 
Long after their deaths, a merchant opening a new business near the location of the tragedy hired an electrician to do some work in the old building. After they began the inspection, he and his crewmen heard what sounded like a dog whining. They searched around the empty building but didn't see the dog anywhere. After the electrician returned to his inspection and had taken a good look at the wiring, he came back downstairs and advised the merchant against the work. Too risky, he said. A fire hazard. To this day, some say boss can be heard whining along the waterfront, especially when someone is careless with fire. Ellerbrock and Boss were buried in the same casket at Oakdale Cemetery, and the pillar erected by the community can still be visited today. One side honors the courage of the 24-year-old Ellerbrock, the other a carving of a sleeping boss, protecting his master for all eternity with the inscription, Faithful Until Death. Hearing this story while standing outside of the building where it happened brought tears to my eyes. Truly a tale of unwavering love and commitment. Keep being awesome, Katie. And her Twitter handle, at werewolfface, end quote. God, that's such a beautiful story and such a sad story. What did we ever do to deserve dogs? Well, and cats, because my own cat has come to sort of rest faithfully at my own feet. I think she could sense that I was getting a bit emotional. What did we do to deserve these incredible animals? Thank you, Katie, for sending me that story. And she even sent these articles so that I could sort of look into the veracity of this story. And she's done a really good job in retelling it, so I don't have anything to add. But I will try to remember to post a picture to social media of that grave, of Dog and Master, the tomb that they share. It's really, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful grave and a beautiful story. So thank you to Katie. Thank you to Carolyn. And if you have anything that you'd like to share, a story that you've heard that touched you, that you'd like to retell, something that happened to you personally or to family in the past, please uh, reach out to me. You can reach me in a number of ways on social media, of course, on Facebook at AYAOTB Podcast, on Instagram at Afraid of the Bark Podcast, on Twitter at Afraid of the Bark, and by email at Afraid of the Bark Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much again to Katie and to Carolyn. What beautiful stories. And they've really, they've made me simultaneously sad and they've warmed my heart. So this does conclude this long-awaited episode 24. I hope it was worth the wait. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope to hear from you if you have any stories of your own or any comments at all about the cast, even if you'd like to berate me for my inconsistency. But this does bring us to the end of this episode 24. And I guess that that means that I have only one thing left to say to you. And that is simply that I hope that you have sweet dreams tonight. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.